With that, we're in 2 Peter tonight, chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. In a study I'm calling Stirred and Not Shaken, as we'll see here. So let's pray. Father, thanks so much for the chance, Lord, to be in your word. And Lord, as we learn, Father, you want to stir us through your word. And so, Lord, we know that every time we approach your word, regardless of what passage it is, Lord, you have something to say to us. It's prophetic. And so I pray, Lord, that your word would help us to have ears to hear what your spirit would have to say to us personally or also to your church corporately. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's something to think about as we start. If you had the opportunity to give a final message to your family, friends, or church before you went home to be with Christ, what would that message be? What would you say? Well, we know exactly what Peter would say because we've looked at it over the last couple weeks. This is Peter's final message. We learned that in chapter one. Peter said, hey, my departure is at hand. Pretty soon I'm gonna put off my tent just as the Lord showed me. Basically, he was saying, hey, the Lord told me I was going to die for him, and shortly I'm going to die for him. And this was Peter's last message that he would give to the church, this letter that would be taken and circulated throughout Asia Minor, eventually, obviously, making it to us to, to touch the whole world for the Lord. Peter's focus in this final message is very simple. He's reminding believers to abide and remain in the truth of God's word. I love how simple that is. He said, hey, just, re- just abide and remain in the word of God. Because as we've learned so far, as we looked at both First and Second Peter, that the word of God is powerful. It's incorruptible. Though the heavens may pass away, you know, this earth pass away, God's word is eternal. It's always gonna remain. And, and so the most important encouragement that we can give a person is abide in God's word. Obviously, besides that is to get saved, right? Repent. But, but obviously, Peter's speaking to believers here. Abide in God's word because that's where you're going to find life. That's where you're going to find direction and hope. Peter's going to continue this encouragement tonight by encouraging us to abide in God's word because as we do, we'll be stirred and not shaken. It's kind of a continuation of what we learned last week about false teachers. Peter had that whole chapter of lengthy things to say about false teachers, Right? And now he's going to continue on and talk about these scoffers, which will come in the last days, and he'll teach us how we can be strong to stand against them. So let's begin here in verse 1. He says, Beloved, I now write to you in the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. And so Peter begins his first chapter by addressing these believers by a sweet title. He calls them beloved. Now, obviously, Peter, being their pastor, loved these believers, they were his beloved. As Paul talked about in his letters, they were his crown. They were, you know, they were his hope and, and, and what he ran the race for to, um, to minister to them because that's what Christ called them to do. But in a general sense, all believers are beloved. That's who we are. You see, Jesus, the Bible says, is God's beloved. But since you and I have faith in Christ and we're now in Christ, we are now God's beloved. That's who we are in Christ. That's how God looks at us. He looks at us as his beloved. The word beloved means loved one. So we're loved ones by God. And that's really a sweet devotional truth because the world is looking for identity, right? They want to be characterized by something. And most of us, before we came to Christ, was characterized by bad things, right? 
I mean, some, some of you may, may be good things, but some of us were characterized by bad things. But it's just a sweet reminder that in Christ we're a new creation. That the old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. And that we're not characterized by those, those sins anymore, those, you know, who, who we were, but now we're characterized by the fact that we're loved by God. And John takes that up, the apostle of love, you know, he, he, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we can all call ourselves that. We are the disciple whom Jesus loves. We are God's beloved. And God looks down on us and he loves us. He, he doesn't see us for our sins, but he sees us for our faith in Christ. What a sweet encouragement we have from the word. Now, Peter goes on to state his purpose once again in writing both his first and second epistles. He says it was to remind them of God's truth so that their pure minds could be stirred up. Now, some of your translations might read the word sincere minds, and that's an accurate translation there. The word is either pure or sincere. Most scholars favor the, favor the word sincere. And the word sincere comes from the Greek word uh, without wax. And, um, and it, it describes how, you know, in the ancient Greek culture, they would have pottery. And when the pottery had cracks, you know, they didn't have Bondo on that day. If they did, they probably would have used that, shaved it down, you know. But they would use wax. And they would fill in these different cracks by wax. And it looked great until you stuck it out in the sun. And then the heat would eventually melt the wax. And Peter is here saying, hey, listen, believers are to have a pure mind. They're to have a sincere mind. And very simply, this is the exact opposite of a fleshly mind or, or, or a sinful mind. It's, it's, it's a pure mind. It's the opposite of having a double mind, as James called it. A double mind, which is, you know, saying that you live for Christ, but yet living another way. God wants to work in our hearts. He, he wants to renew our mind, and he wants us to, to daily um, grow in him. Now, this work begins at our salvation. You know, we all have an evil mind, a debased mind, but the moment we receive Christ, his spirit comes in us, and he begins to renew our mind. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says that God is renewing our mind. We're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the only way that, thing, you know, that can be done is through the Holy Spirit, as the Lord begins to convict us and to lead us. You know, if you're a Christian, you know the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know, before you're a believer, you don't really care what you do. You just, I mean, obviously you have a conscience still, but you kind of stick that aside. But as a Christian, right, the moment you become a Christian, like, oh man, I can't do that anymore. I can't say that anymore because the Spirit is working on your mind and on your heart. And then he begins leading you. He begins guiding you and giving you direction. Now, while God does the work in renewing our mind, you and I as believers can't just sit back and just let go. We have a responsibility in it. And that responsibility is to allow God to stir our minds. And we see how that is so through the word of God. And that's what Peter says here in verse two. The way God stirs our mind, he says, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and in the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. And so the way God stirs our pure mind, our sincere minds, is through his word, the entire word of God. Peter said, I want you to be mindful. I want you to remember what the holy prophets said or the teachings of the Old Testament. Also, he said, I want you to be aware and remember what Christ said 
and what Christ said through us, his apostles. That's the New Testament. And so Peter here refers to both the Old Testament and New Testament as being as the word of God, showing that at this time already they had these different teachings from the apostles that were circulating around. And Jews who understood the scriptures, the 39 books of our Old Testament, automatically took these New Testament books and applied them together and said, hey guys, these are the authoritative teachings of God. You need to obey these things. And as you do, you'll be stirred up. You'll be stirred to grow in Christ. Verse three, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And so not only does the Bible stir us and help us to grow, but the Bible keeps us wise as far as our salvation. It gives us discernment. Peter says that scoffers will come in the last days. And we're gonna know that first. It's an important thing to know because it's gonna happen. As we looked at last week, we know that you know, the closer we are to the coming of Christ, the more and more false teaching and apostates will see arise. Now, it's clear from both the Old and New Testament that there will be the presence of false teachers in the last days. And the term last days is a reference to the timing between the first and second comings of Jesus. And so, guess what? We're living in the last days. And so we should expect false teaching. We should expect there to be apostate preachers, but that shouldn't shake us. You know, that shouldn't hinder us from being stirred. Rather, that should give us discernment and help us to know, you know, what we're listening to and, and what we're reading because there is false material out there. These false teachers will not only reject biblical truth, but they'll scoff at biblical truth. They'll be outspoken and publish materials about their denial of biblical doctrine or biblical morality. Sadly, that, that's so. There's even some professors in evangelical seminaries, which are now pretty liberal, who are saying that Peter in the book of Matthew was actually an apostate. I'm sure, I wonder what Peter would say about him. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, one, he's one of those guys, I can tell you what. You know? And so you know, these are the, the apostate guys that, that Peter's talking about. These, these guys who, are, who, who have this platform and they're liberal and they're denying the actual teachings of scripture. They're denying the works of Christ. They're outspoken on their hatred of, of evangelical doctrine and biblical morality. Now, we're not to be deceived or shaken by these scoffers. The rejection of biblical truth is not based on some secret discovery of unknown truth that we can't know. But notice this. Peter's very clear about it. It's because they choose to walk according to their own lusts. Wow, I didn't say that. Peter said that. As he said, he said, hey, they're false because they're choosing to walk according to their own lusts. Not because they've discovered some secret truth, but it's because they choose to reject the scriptures. You know, and that's what, that's what false teachers want you to believe. That's what these different apostles want you to believe. They want you to believe that they have some kind of secret teaching or secret truth that, well, you can't really know as a Christian. Only I can know. So let me tell you, the whole Bible's wrong, but everything I say is true. And in reality, Peter says, the spirit looks behind that and says, it's really based upon their own lusts. The root behind it all is sin. The root behind it is pride. And the root behind it all is selfishness. Now concerning their message and attack on Christ and Christianity, Peter, he gives us an example here. He says, here's their message. They say, where is the promise of his coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And so, you know, we talked a lot of, you know, about a lot of evidence of false teachers um, last week, but we given, you know, you know, we have another example here of, a, of an apostate preacher. They reject one or more essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Essential doctrine, what is that? Well, it's the foundational teachings that we have from the Bible of those things which make our salvation possible. It are those things which make you and I being saved possible. For example, it's like the deity of Christ, the fact that Christ was fully God, or the fact that Christ was fully man, and the fact that Christ was born of a virgin and he was without sin. The fact that he was, you know, that when he died, he died as a substitution on the cross for our sins, to, to pay for our sins on the cross. He rose bodily from the dead, and he'll literally come again a second time. Peter says that scoffers will come and mock the second coming of Jesus. They'll reject this foundational truth, and as a result, they're identified as a heretic. And so any, any teaching, any group that rejects a foundational doctrine is, is a heretic. They're, they're, they're an heir. And Peter says, don't be deceived when, when they come and, and reject these things. Um, you know, we know exactly where they're coming from. Now, based on Christ's seeming delay, they form a new position and teach a teach of, uh, they teach a form of what's called uniformitarianism, which says that everything that we see in the world can be explained by natural processes. Everything you see around us, it's all based on natural processes. Our universe has and will always continue to follow a natural order. Nothing changes. You know, everything will just continue on the same. Sounds like a lot of teaching today, right? Evolutionists, right? Naturalists, those people who invaded seminaries in the 17 and 1800s. You know, you know deists. You know, these people say, well, yeah, God created everything, but then he just kind of stepped back. He won't intervene inside creation, but he just kind of wound it up like a clock, and now all things are falling in a natural order. Peter said, hey, beware of those guys in the last days. And you and I, we see a rise of that. It's, it, the influence is everywhere. But Peter said, their arguments have no weight against the truth of Scripture. And I love Peter. Here's the apostle of Jesus Christ. He has authority, and he uses his authority to point believers back to the word of God to refute their teaching. We see his first response in verses five through seven. Peter addresses the argument that God will not interrupt the natural course of the world. They say that all things continue, you know, since the fathers have fell asleep. He says, no, that's not true. There's evidence that God does intervene in his creation. Verse five, for they, are willfully, uh, for they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in, in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. And so their lack of knowledge of truth, notice this, is willful. They choose to overlook and suppress the truth because it's found in God's word. It's right there. First book of the Bible, Genesis, chapters one through 11. That's what Peter points to here. And their rejection of it is willful. And in many of the cults today, those who reject the foundational teachings of Scripture, whether they be Jehovah's Witness or Mormons, their rejection is willful because you can show them the Scriptures. I've, I've had chances to talk to them and you know, I, I'll, I some, you know, invite them in and sit down and show them, hey, well, look, 
Jesus said, I am the first and the last. Revelation 1.17. But Jehovah said, I am the first and the last. Isaiah 44.6. Who does that make Jesus? The first creation of God. <laughs> You're missing it here. You know, let's talk about this again. You know, kind of thing. I mean, so over and over and over. And so often their rejection is willful. You know, for what reasons? I mean, there could be a multitude of reasons. But in, in the same way, Peter says here, these false teachers, their rejection is willful. It's not based upon some hidden knowledge that you and I don't have. It's just because they don't want to accept the plain teachings of scriptures because they don't like it. Now, Genesis 1 through 11 is what Peter points to here. And first of all, in verse five, he points to Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, God gives us here a literal account of his creation by his word in six literal days. The focus of Genesis chapter one is on creation, yes, but that's not really the, the main focus of it. The purpose of Genesis chapter one is God. The word God is used some 30 to 31 times in that first chapter, you can read it. It's all about God's power. It's all about who God is and, and, and how he can speak the universe into existence. But it does give us an accurate six-day account of creation. And on day one, God spoke the universe and the earth into existence. But notice this, just like Adam, they were created with an appearance of age. Peter says here that God, you know, by his word brought the heavens of old. You know, so, so as you look at Adam, you think, man, that guy's like 35. Well, you know, in, in the same way, when you look at the universe, it has an appearance of age, even though it could be one day old. God spoke it, and, and it was there, fully, fully created. On the first day, the universe and the earth was created. And then, then on day two, God intervened, and there he created the atmosphere. And then on day three, we're told that he brought the land up out of the water. And there the continents appeared, and God created the grass and the trees and, you know, seed and everything that bears fruit according to his kind and, and all that. And then God intervened again on the fourth day, intervened again on the fifth day, intervened again on the sixth day. And so Peter says, well, just read Genesis chapter one. God has intervened into creation and has done something. And then he says, well, skip over a couple chapters to Genesis chapter six to eight. And that's what he says in verse six. He says, God has also inter intervened again and he destroyed the world during the days of Noah because they were living in sin, because their heart was only evil. God intervened and destroyed the earth at that time with a flood. And so God does intervene in creation. You know what? And if God didn't intervene, you know, we'd, we'd be in trouble as, you know, as humanity because you know, God's intervention is actually his grace. And that's what we see really in, in Genesis you know, one through um, 11. I mean, here's man, they fall, Genesis three, well, God intervenes. What does he do? He takes a lamb and he sacrifices it and establishes a way that which man can approach him. And then man begins doing that, living according to their conscience. But then man begins to, you know, turn away from God and the earth becomes corrupted. So God says, man, the only way that I can spare mankind is I have to intervene again through the flood in order to protect them, so I have to separate you know, whoever will come, but only no one's family comes, and the rest of the earth is destroyed. And then after God spares them, and you know, they begin to populate the earth, we have Genesis chapters 10 and 11, in which man says, you know what, let's build a tower and worship the heavens. 
forget God. We're not gonna obey his command and scatter. And so what does God do? He has to intervene again. And they're, you know, scatter man change by changing languages. And so God's intervention. So God does intervene. You know, and, and Peter uses this to refute their argument, but we also can use this to have a truth because you know what? God intervened in our life through his grace. You know, through the cross of Christ, God intervened and touched our hearts and, and freed our wills so that we can believe and so we can, you know, turn from our sin and, and, and believe the gospel. And so if it wasn't for God's interventions, we'd all be in trouble. And so there's a lot more truth that these false teachers are rejecting besides the fact that, you know, they're uniformitarians. But Peter goes on and says, that's not it. You know, um, God continues to work. Now, Peter goes on in verses 8 to 9, 8 and 9, to show that God's word teaches us uh, about his will. Or excuse me, I, I skipped verse 7 there. Let's go back to verse 7. <laughs> um, but verse 7, it says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of, uh, of ungodly men. That's why you always have to stick to your notes, right? Don't, don't get off. And so, you know, so first Peter addresses the issue of the fact that everything continues the same since the fathers have fell asleep. They said, since Adam and since the patriarchs, right, all things continue as they were. And Peter says, and that's not true. God has intervened, right? And he has, and he has stepped in. And now, and now he deals with our present situation. And the fact that God has intervened to preserve this, this world that we're in by his same word. He says, this heavens and the earth are now preserved through the same word. So the same word that spoke the universe into existence, the same word that was able to destroy the earth with water, is the same word that now reserves this earth uh, for judgment. And so God does have a plan for our world. And until that day in which God fulfills his plan in destroying this earth through fire, God is currently going to protect it. So we don't have to worry about the sun getting so close to the earth and blowing the earth up. You know, a nuclear explosion, oh no, kind of thing. And don't read commentaries because some people talk about nuclear explosions with the fire, but don't believe me in that. That's <laughs> just like, that's something that guys would write about in the 80s and stuff like that. They're just, now you read about it and you're like, no, seriously. But, you know, but, you know, no, but God, there, there is a judgment coming on this earth and it will begin at the Great Tribulation. But until that day, God is going to preserve this earth. He's going to hold this earth together by his word. We know a couple ways that he does it. He does it by, you know, holding all things together. We're told in Colossians that in him, all things consist. That means all things are held together. It's that you know, atomic glue that holds the atoms together, right? Keeps them from splitting apart and everything blowing up. God has his universe and he holds, you know, our, our universe together. He, he holds our earth at, at its perfect axis, right? So we don't tip over and freeze and, or get too close to the sun. We're not really worried about global warming. You know, I mean, God has a perfect plan for our, for our earth and, and, and for our world. And that perfect plan is to rapture the church. And after the church is raptured, he's gonna bring judgment on this earth for seven years. It's called the Great Tribulation. After that seven years, the Lord is going to bring Christ back with his church to this earth and establish his kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. And after that thousand years, this Present heaven and earth is going to be destroyed, and the Lord is going to remake a new heaven, new earth, and we're going to dwell in eternity with Christ in the new Jerusalem forever and ever and ever and ever. Forever, right? As they say in Sandlot. And so that's God's plan. 
And so we, we know the end of the book. And so we know exactly what God is going to do. So we don't have to be shaken, but we can be stirred um, to live godly lives until then. Now, back to verse 8 and 9. Peter shows us that God's word teaches us about God and his will for our life. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, Peter goes on here to quote Psalm 90, verse 4. Once again, Peter's pointing back to the scriptures. And he says it's, um, you know, and he says that it's important to note that God looks at time differently than we do. Now, before we talk about this verse, I just want to say something quickly. Peter is not saying that a day, that, that one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. He's not saying that. He says one day is as a thousand years to God in a thousand years as one day. And so, you know, sometimes people will take this verse and they'll say, well, you know, since a day is a thousand years, 6,000 years, we're going to be on this earth. But the 7,000 year, that's when everything's going to happen. And you can't base that based upon this verse. Psalm 90, verse 4, and Peter in this verse is talking about the eternality of God. That fact, the fact that God is eternal. And that because God is eternal and he's outside of, outside of time and space, he has no restrictions as we do. He doesn't see time as we do. Yesterday, you know, he sees a thousand years ago as, as he sees yesterday. And so that's all Peter's saying. He's saying, so God is, is in no hurry. He has a perfect plan. He sees the end from the beginning and he knows exactly what he's doing. Verse nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so these false teachers are going to come on the scene and they're going to criticize the Lord for his seeming delay. Why hasn't Christ come back yet? And well, since Christ hasn't come back, maybe all things just continue as they are, uniformitarian, you know, nothing's going to happen. But Peter says, don't believe that because the Lord, his seeming delay is actually his purpose. He has a plan in delaying. And that delay is based upon his long-suffering. This word there in Greek means to be long-tempered. And it has to do with his relationship with mankind. The Lord has a long temper with mankind. He's being patient. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Who's the all referring to here? Well, all mankind. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why hasn't Christ come back yet? Why doesn't God just get this thing on? Well, because God is still calling out to man because he doesn't want any to perish, but he wants all to come to repentance. God has established a way that all men can come to repentance. Christ said, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself through his grace. So God has established that. Now he is longing for that. And so God is allowing this time of grace to go out as, as the gospel spreads throughout this earth desiring that, that people you know, will repent. Now, often people look at this and say, well, that's a philosophical argument. But skip down to verses 15 and 16 real fast. Notice this. Paul, Peter tells us that it's actually a biblical argument because Peter refers to Paul's writing as scripture. He said, as Paul wrote these things, as people twist as they do the rest of the scriptures, and even Paul in his writings wrote about the long suffering of God you know, that men would come to repentance. And so Peter, again, is referring to the word of God, but he's referring to the New Testament teaching of the word of God. 
And so the fact that God is not one that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, that God is long-suffering, waiting, isn't a philosophical argument that people make up, you know, to try to make God in the image of man. That's often what some people say. Well, you know, people think that, you know, God is like a man. You know, you're humanistic in your understanding. No, we're biblical in our understanding. Paul said that God is long-suffering, and Peter said that God is long-suffering. God is not one that any should perish. Therefore, he's established a dispensation of grace, and he hasn't ushered in the millennium yet because he wants people to repent. So how does this apply to us tonight? Well, we have a reminder that in the last days, perilous times will come. False teachers will come. But we shouldn't be shaken by it because we have the word of God. And as we meditate on the word of God, we'll not only have discernment, but we'll also be stirred up to grow. You know, and we'll know the heart of God, we'll know the way of God, and we'll know the will of God. Amen?